Good morning. I'm Wes, uh, one of the pastors here. Excited to now have this time where we will look at a passage from God's Word together. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, uh, whatever, if you would turn to the book of Matthew. Today we're in chapter 20 and beginning of verse 17. And when you found that, if you're able, would you stand together with me for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 20, beginning of verse 17. Matthew says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this is James and John, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked, uh, asked him for something, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus said and answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you, this is plural, you, are, are you all able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. we can do it. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it is being prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, that is, like heard what the brothers had asked, they were indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly. Spirit of God, would you come now and anoint the preaching of your word? Open hearts and minds and ears to hear what you want to say to us, accomplish the good purpose you want to accomplish in us. And as I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I don't know if it's the same for you. If you, if you said this exact same thing to your parents when you were growing up or not, I'm starting to think it's a universal thing because I said it to my parents and my kids said the same thing to me entirely unprompted. But did you ever get the idea as a kid when your parents uh, were going away on a trip or something like that to hide in their suitcase and go on the trip with them? Like maybe you just thought, I'm going to miss them. I don't want them to go. I don't want to be with grandma and grandpa, whatever. Hide in your suitcase thinking this idea of like, you know, they, they might be upset at first, maybe. But, you know, I think once they get over the shock of finding me hidden amongst their T-shirts and socks, I, I think they'll be glad I'm here. I think they'd be glad I came. Uh, or, or even, if you didn't do that, just even asking them outright, just begging with them, please take me with you. You, you don't even have to buy a plane ticket. I'll, I'll just hide in your suitcase. It'll be fine. Did you do this? Has anyone else? I, maybe it's just the size of a kid's body in a suitcase. I don't know. 
Having now been on the receiving end of this same request myself, I know I've replied, generally speaking, in the same way that my parents replied to me, maybe your parents replied to you as well, with basically kind of saying like, hey, good desire, wrong approach. I mean, I love that you want to be with me. That's a great desire. That's not the right way to go about it. And I bring it up as we continue in this teaching series through the Gospel of Matthew entitled Kingdom Come, but actually conclude what has now become really unintended, kind of a three-part mini-series within this series about a different approach to Jesus because what we're going to see in our passage today is that like exact same scenario almost with like the kid in the suitcase, only just substituting in a different desire and a different approach. And the desire is the desire for greatness in the kingdom of God and how it is that we achieve it. Which is actually the question, if you know, if you've been here for the last few weeks, that Jesus has been dealing with all the way back since chapter 18 when his disciples first asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This whole time, it seems like he has to keep coming back to this again and again. So if you haven't been with us for even this little mini-series, two weeks ago, Back in chapter 19, we looked at Jesus' interaction with a rich young ruler, a man who believed he was already great in the kingdom of God, but felt like, you know, maybe I'm missing something. I don't know what it is. Can't put my finger on it. So he'd come to Jesus, asking him what he still lacked in order to have assurance of eternal life. And that's where we learned about this idea of the approach of a child versus the approach of a ruler. But then, last week, we looked at a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, They believed they were great in the kingdom of God because, unlike the rich young ruler who valued earthly wealth over treasures in heaven, he'd gone away sorrowful. They had left everything and followed Jesus. And this is where we learned about rewards for service in the kingdom as well as discerning our motivation for service, which is basically the idea of talking about the danger of spiritual pride for followers of Jesus. But today, and I think this last approach to Jesus actually either like grows out of or runs parallel to this approach of spiritual pride, we're going to look at the desire for greatness in the kingdom and the danger of spiritual ambition in trying to achieve it. Spiritual ambition. Now that word, ambition, at least in church contexts, I know is a word that carries much of the same kind of negative connotation as seeking rewards for service in the kingdom that we looked at last week does. And yet, once again, what's fascinating is that when you look in our passage, we see that when it comes to this desire that the disciples have to be greatest in the kingdom, rather than rebuke them harshly, how dare you ask me that? You you know what? You're done. You're out. I'm cutting up your membership card, whatever it is. No, instead, we see Jesus also telling his disciples, good desire, wrong approach. Which I think, like, whatever that wrong approach is, is something truly important for us to learn, to be able to discern as well as correct in our own lives as followers of Jesus today, because maybe you never thought of this, but there actually is a good side to spiritual ambition. There's like a a good part of that. When it's patterned after the life of Jesus, that's about surrendering position and power for the benefit of others in the building of the kingdom. That's actually a good thing. But yes, there is also kind of a shadow side to spiritual ambition. That's all about grasping for power and position. It's all about exercising our authority and superiority over people. 
That's, that's the, the negative side or the shadow side of it. So in order that we might learn to identify that shadow side of spiritual ambition whenever it comes up in our lives, in the life of our church, as well as both to practice and pursue the truly good desire to be greatest in the kingdom of God at the same time, I want to dig into and explore those, those two sides of spiritual ambition with you just for a few minutes this morning. So we're going to talk about that, the, the shadow side of spiritual ambition and then what Jesus describes as the servant side of spiritual ambition. Shadow side and the, spirit, or, and the servant side of spiritual ambition. So if you close your Bibles, Bible app, whatever you have with you, could you open it again to that passage? Matthew 20, beginning at verse 17. Follow along with me as we continue to look at this different approach to Jesus that, as we've been saying, is, is different than what is natural for most of us. And that seems like it was natural for Jesus' disciples as well. But that Jesus says will truly grant us the desire of our hearts and find none of us walking away from him sorrowful. Okay, so let's look first of all at the, the shadow side of spiritual ambition. What is that? The shadow side of spiritual ambition. What's important to notice right from the beginning here is the context in which we're shown this shadow side because if you look at verses 17 through 19, look with me there, you see that Matthew holds up right next to this request for position and power in the kingdom from James and John and their mom. This, this is now Jesus' third prediction of his impending death he's about to face in Jerusalem from the religious rulers and from the Romans. Because, I mean, like their, their request is already audacious. It's already like way too much. And yet, when you hold it up right next to Jesus' positioning what he's saying this surrendering a position and power in order to serve us it helps us to see their request like in all its full light and, and really ugliness i think fd bruner was right when he noted the location of this text verses 17 through 19 is important this third passion prediction he says is placed exactly between jesus warning parable against spiritual pride in the last story and jesus warning encounter with spiritual ambition in the next he goes on, precisely when the disciples began to think how much better they were than the rich young ruler on the one hand, and how they could climb to higher places of power in Jesus' kingdom on the other, Jesus announces that he goes to Jerusalem to die. So no, now if you look at verse 20, the, the, the word then that Matthew begins this next section with doesn't necessarily have to mean like the moment Jesus stopped talking. It doesn't, but at least like close enough that the memory of what Jesus had just said here and told them would still be clearly in their minds. Matthew tells us James, John, and their mom pulled Jesus aside to, to make a request. Now, it's been noted by some scholars that James and John's uh, mother, uh, her name was Salome, is very possibly uh, the sister of Jesus' mother Mary, making Salome uh, Jesus' aunt and James and John possibly his cousins. So there may have been some kind of, a, on the basis of some sort of family connection that they're coming to Jesus and making this request, but family or not, as we see, these three pull Jesus aside and ask that James and John might be granted the honor of sitting at Jesus' right hand and at his left when his kingdom is established. The, the seats to the right or the left of a reigning monarch, if you didn't know, are the seats of like high esteem, highest esteem and also like shared ruling authority. So, I mean, this is no small ask for James and John. And yet, clearly, they all felt, all three of them felt, that they were deserving of this honor. Certainly, the mom obviously did. And maybe you'd want to ask, okay, like, I mean, where are they even getting this idea of ruling on thrones to begin with? Where is that coming from? 
Um, but if you remember what we looked at last week in response to Peter's question to Jesus, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we get? Jesus had responded there in verse 28 of chapter 19. Truly I say to you in the new world, this is like the new heavens and the new earth, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, so whether Salome was there when Jesus had said this, or James and John had just like told her that this is what Jesus said about them later, we're not told. But clearly, the moment she heard it, the moment that she heard that this is what was happening, Salome got it in her heart. Hey, listen, if all 12 of these disciples are going to be ruling alongside Jesus in his new kingdom, then, you know, my boys, my boys clearly have to be the ones at the center of the action. I mean, clearly, I mean, even whether it's the family connection, again, we don't know. But th this is kind of what's going on in her mind. And then alongside that, we've got to remember, Peter, he's also been kind of clearly established as the third of this inner circle of Jesus' disciples. So there's also a little bit of like, we've got we to get our foot in the door here before Jesus starts assigning seating order here because he just might give Peter the seat because nobody thought to ask him. So let's just, you know... You have not because you ask not, right? Isn't that what you said, Jesus? So we're just going to ask. We want to make sure that we've at least put our names in for the draw. Bare pragmatism. This is all very clandestine and secretive approach, pulling Jesus aside. And also entirely self-interested. And we also know it was essentially nothing more than a bold-faced power grab, despite their seemingly like humble presentation and well-answered interview questions, because of the way that Jesus goes on to say in response, verse 25 there, to all of them, about the way the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, lorded over those that they hold power over, how their great ones exercise authority. When the rest of the disciples get wind of James and John's request, they know that's what's going on, and so now it turns into what feels like an all-out WWE cage matches, they decide, you know, who gets to sit where and which seats go where. Clearly, James and John just saw themselves as the best among the disciples, right? They were the best. They were the most qualified. They, they were the ones who, who should have these positions, therefore the best suited to have these places of honor and to kind of help Jesus keep these other ten in line, right? Put them in their place, help them to, like, deal with their unruly behavior. Jesus, we're the ones who should be here. Problem being that the other ten disciples saw themselves in exactly the same way, uh, as evidenced by their indignation that James and John would kind of sneak in there, try to take hold of what they saw as their rightful seats, perhaps even like maybe using their family advantage uh, unfairly. As D.A. Carson rightly puts it, the indignation of the ten doubtless sprang less from humility than jealousy plus fear that they might not lose out. Everybody's in it for themselves here. And I know I've said this before, but I get the impression a lot of times that Jesus must have like held his face in his hands or like pinched the brow of his nose a lot during his time with these guys because this is not an uncommon situation with the disciples. I mean, they're often having these kinds of interactions. And yet, given what he'd already taught them about the, the need for humility in the kingdom, serving one another, putting the needs of others ahead of their own, all these things, not to mention the fact Jesus had just told them again, he's going to Jerusalem He's going to give his life. He's, he's returning to the Father. He's not going to be around to correct these things much longer. There must have also been a mix of sadness as well as fear, like humanly speaking, in Jesus' reply as he sits them down yet again to deal with this question of being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And yet as you see Jesus like call them together, guys, come here. He's looking them in the eye. 
He's just patiently helping them yet again to understand what service and leadership looked like in the kingdom and what it's supposed to look like. I don't know if it's the same for you, but I derive a great deal of comfort actually watching him do this. Because when I see that the, the way, when I think of the way that Jesus has to be patient with me over and over again, my continued failures, my continued failure to put into practice what he's shown me again and again, it gives me a lot of comfort. I mean, it, it's fun, I know, to tisk and shake our head at the disciples, but are we any different than them? Are we not just as prone to wander and just as slow to pick these things up as they were, if not more so? So I get a great deal of comfort and hope in witnessing Jesus' patience and steadfastness with them, because I think if he can be patient like that with them, then hopefully he can be patient like that with me. And that's certainly been my experience. But as we now have this clear picture of what the shadow side of spiritual ambition looks like, and then we seek to be able to both identify it as well as correct it in, in our lives, in the life of, of this church, I think where we need to start is with Jesus' kind of really painfully clear prohibition there at the beginning of verse 26. Look, he says, this shall not be so among you. This kind of leadership, this kind of ambition I've just described, that is, should not be so among you. For citizens of my kingdom, this isn't at all what your ambition or your leadership should look like. Which is tricky, right? Because maybe, just like James and John, you might be desiring those positions of power and influence because you feel gifted in those areas. You genuinely want to do great things for the kingdom of God, and so that's just, it's a good desire that you have. Or maybe, like alongside that, Leon Morris, as he puts it, the world is apt to reason, what's the point of being a ruler if you can't act like one? It's a good question. But as hopefully you see, this isn't what Jesus is critiquing and warning his disciples against is not having positions of power and leadership in general. He's talking about grasping at power in order to exalt yourself, in order to put your own interests above the interests of others, in order to domineer over other people. That's what he's talking about. That's the kind of leadership and ambition that Jesus says shall not be so among his followers. So I suppose then in light of that, as, as we kind of apply that to our own lives, I think the question we need to ask ourselves then is, okay, so, so where do my ambitions or my leadership look exactly what Jesus is warning, about, warning us about here? Where does it look exactly like that? Whether it's inside or outside the church, in your home, in your classroom, in your organization, whatever, where do I see patterns of domineering, lording my position over others, intimidating people, putting people in their place? Or, listen, even if you're not in a position of leadership where you can lead in those ways, longing for positions like that, uh, uh, scheming to get them like James and John were, so that you can control people in that domineering and self-imposing ways, to, to get your turn in the chair and call the shots for a while, as it were. Where do you see that in your own ambitions and leadership? Wherever you see it or sense the temptation to want to lead in those ways, we need to remind ourselves, we need to remind one another. But Jesus says very clearly, it shall not be so among you. That's not what service and ambition looks like in my kingdom. The desire is good. The approach, that approach, is all wrong. But of course, if that's the case, then the follow-up question immediately becomes, okay, so if that's not what we should be doing, that's not, that should not be so among a follower of Jesus, what is the right approach to what Jesus says is a good desire to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What are we supposed to do then? Well, that's what I want to look at together with you lastly. 
as Jesus teaches and also lives out real time this servant side of spiritual ambition. What is the servant side of spiritual ambition? And where you see that is immediately following what Jesus has presented as what should not be so among his followers in the second half of verse 26. Look with me there. Jesus says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now, if you were with us last week, that language of being first, that should kind of like stand out and ring a bell to you because that's exactly what Jesus had said repeatedly to uh, Peter and the other disciples' displays of spiritual pride. He'd said, remember, but whoever, many who are first, he said, will be last, and the last first. So this idea of being first, and he'd said, that's a good thing. But what's new now is this language of being a servant and a, and a slave to others, a servant, uh, diakonos in the Greek. In this culture and context here would have been, generally speaking, a hired worker who would maintain their master's household, and then a slave, the, the Greek doulos. This was someone forced into service. But in either case, both of these things would have been seen as like the very lowest positions in Jewish society slave and a servant, very lowest positions. And yet, I mean, this is kind of just like standard now in Jesus' teaching by this point. In the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom reversals, it's those who are least who are actually the greatest. And he seems to be exalting those positions the same way here, which means what? Uh, followers of Jesus, none of us should be leaders. None of us should be politicians. None of us should be dorm RAs or whatever it is. We should just resign and retire from those positions and just start to be servants. We got to Servants, that's all we can aspire to? Well, hopefully you know that's not what Jesus is getting at at all. For as we just saw in the last point about the shadow side of spiritual ambition, Jesus, he's speaking about the mindset of someone who holds positions of power and authority. The mindset of them, and, or, or even those who are seeking to hold those positions. That is, it's not about being in positions of power and influence or not but about how citizens of the kingdom are to see themselves when they are in those positions of power and authority, how it is we're behaving towards others as a result of how we see ourselves when we hold those positions. That's what he's talking about. And what does that look like? Well, very helpfully, after calling the one who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven to be the servant and slave of all, Jesus goes on there in verse 28 to say, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, along with being a staggering example of what Jesus is talking about at like epic proportions, if you were listening carefully, you might have noticed Jesus also creates a similar inclusio or like set of brackets like he did last week around a bit of teaching. As back in verses 18 and 19, he had concluded by speaking about this act of service of giving his life. And then here again, at the end of his teaching, he says, once again, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to lay my life down as a ransom for many. And his point, in contrast to the kind of power-grabbing request of James and John and really all the disciples contained within those brackets, is to reveal that even for he himself, as the Son of Man, the Son of Man, this, this direct reference to Jesus' divine nature, Son of Man, this reference back to uh, Daniel 7, this figure who would come and, and, and rule and reign with all authority, he says, even the Son of Man, what made him greatest in the kingdom was not wielding his power and authority, which he rightly had, like an like a iron rod or something, smashing, domineering, overpowering, but by making himself the lowest of all. 
serving the needs of the many above his own. That's what made him truly the greatest. And if you've been in church a while, you've been a follower of Jesus a while, you might be familiar with the words that the Apostle Paul speaks about this very same thing in Philippians 2, where he speaks of Jesus as being the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to which Paul concludes, therefore, like as a result of making himself the least, making himself a slave at all, of all, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And if you know that passage, you know that Paul begins everything he's written about Jesus' humble service with the exact same exhortation there that, he's called, that Jesus is calling his disciples to here in our passage. He says, have this same mind among yourselves. He's calling us to the exact same thing. Have this same mind among yourselves. Which means what? How do we do that? Well, to begin with, I think it's significant that what Paul calls us to emulate, to kind of model our lives after, is the mind of Christ rather than Jesus' specific actions of humble service. Like that is, we are to think like Jesus did, to, to see the world around you and your relationship to it like he did, which is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of us because I think in cases like this, like just like the rich young ruler, we hear teaching like this and our first instinct is to ask, okay, what do I do? What am I supposed to do now? What, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What good deed must I do to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So why then does Paul encourage us to have the mind of Christ and not seek to humbly serve as Jesus did? Well, first of all, I think because giving your life as a ransom for the sins of the world is not something any of us could emulate or could accomplish. But secondly, I think because giving your life because, oh, sorry, because I wonder if Paul's point isn't ultimately, as the well-worn saying goes, that right thinking leads to right action. Right thinking leads to right action. That is, when I enter into each day, whether I'm a leader of someone or something else or not, with the mindset of being a servant, with the idea of I want to place the needs of others above my own, with the idea of just abandoning all thoughts of self-promotion, then humble acts of service are just what naturally flows out of my behavior as a result. When I start with that mindset of seeing myself as the servant of all. And what's beautiful about that, think about it, is that now instead of trying to like cram our square peg into Jesus' round hole of service to do it like he did, we now have a model that's individualized for every single one of us as we take on that mindset ourselves and then apply it to our own unique individual contexts. So which means for me, as a husband and father, it means I am to seek to begin every day understanding myself as the servant of my wife and my daughters. Not, not in a caricatured way or some kind of abusive sense of that word, but just in the way of like genuinely seeking to place their needs, to place their success, their, their joy above my own. It means as a pastor, each day I am to seek to enter into work here, seeing myself as the servant of my staff, the servant ultimately of all of you. It means uh, as a, a neighbor, as a friend, as a, a citizen of the city of Vancouver, 
I am to enter into each day seeking to understand myself as the servant of those people that God has placed me in relationships as well as proximity with. To start my day that way, seeing myself with that mindset, which, listen, hear me, I know. I get it. And you hear that and you think about applying that to your own individual context, probably like instills panic in a lot of us. Uh, it sounds terrifying. It sounds maybe impossible. Why? Because we think, like, how in the world am I ever going to get my own responsibilities done if I'm just trying to serve everybody else, serve their needs? It's a, it's a good question. Valid. Well, I think I'd want to respond to that in two ways. First of all, just doing everything for everyone else isn't actually serving them well. In fact, it may be doing the exact opposite. And secondly, if you think about it, the way Jesus became the servant to all was not in seeking to accomplish what God had called someone else to, but by being faithful to what the Father had called him to do. That is, take on the form of a servant, give his life as a ransom for many. Which means, it's just to say, sometimes the way you'll serve others the best, most often, is just by seeking to be faithful to whatever it is that God has called you to do. To the best of your ability. Again, like to not see this as like adding something else on or kind of just putting like new pressure on you. It's just about a different way of thinking about yourself and in relationship to others that, latch, that just naturally leads to humble acts of service, okay? It's not about like I need to think of myself as super low or, or think of every, like C.S. Lewis, I think, said it best when he said humility, which in this case, I think we could sub in the word servanthood is not about thinking more of others or less of yourself. It's about thinking about yourself less. We began this morning talking about the desire for greatness in the kingdom of God, how it is that we achieve it. We said, okay, that actually is a good desire. And seeing that it's a good thing, learning how to approach that with the mindset of a servant. Well, outside the example of Christ himself, someone that comes to mind to me, who I think learned to live out that mindset and accomplished that desire to be greater and greatest in the kingdom of God, is a man named William Carey. Maybe you know this name, William Carey. He was an 18th century English pastor, Bible translator, a man who gave up everything, gave his whole life in order to be a missionary to India. Uh, many regard William Carey as the founder of the modern-day missions movement. Carey's famous quote, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Maybe you'd be familiar with that. It was given within a sermon that he preached where he sought to rouse a sleepy congregation who had all but lost sight of the desire for greatness in the kingdom of God, in his view, because they'd stopped expecting great things from God. I don't know when you hear that, if that resonates at all with you. You've just lost the desire for greatness in the kingdom of God because you've lost sight of the great things that God's able to do. I don't know about you, it certainly resonates with me. When I think back to just a few years ago, when during COVID lockdowns, this building was a ghost town, where I would spend every Saturday preaching to no one but a camera surrounded by empty pews, feeling like hopelessly disconnected from so many of you. I remember that feeling quite a bit. I can absolutely resonate with the feeling that I had lost the desire for greatness in the kingdom of God, in, in the good sense of the word, and feeling like the only great thing that I could accomplish for God was just not resigning. And I don't know, maybe that experience gives me a different perspective than any of you, and yet I can tell you, standing here today, 
in a room full of worshipers, like every Sunday, it's just a, a reminder to me of the great things God can accomplish. And that then, like in turn, kind of inspires me and gives me hope to attempt great things for God, to desire that greatness in the kingdom once again. But I know I say this all the time, that, that's me. What about you? When you think about your own life, what inspires your desire for greatness in the kingdom yourself? What inspires you to desire and to attempt great things for God? For some of you, when you think of your life and you think of what you've seen God do, stories of God's powerful working and faithfulness in your life, in your life like they already, already just immediately spring to mind at the question. And if that's you, and I pray that Jesus' words from our passage today would inspire you and stir you and your desire for greatness in the kingdom to levels you've never yet experienced, which then, as a result, would inspire you to attempt great things for God that years from now we could look back on and mark today, Sunday, March 12th, 2023, as the origin of when those things began. That's absolutely my prayer. But I also want to be so, so careful, knowing a number of you just well and where people are at. Because while I absolutely believe and have prayed, that's exactly what the Spirit will work amongst us today. What I also know is that some of you here today would answer that question with nothing does. Nothing inspires either a desire for greatness in the kingdom or to attempt great things for God right now. Like, no, maybe you're not struggling with the shadow side of spiritual ambition, but you're not struggling with the servant side either. In fact, just the, even the thought of spiritual ambition of any kind is the farthest thing from your mind. And like me, during COVID lockdown, you're just fighting each day to hold on to your faith and stay afloat. I know some of people, I know some of you are in this room as well. And if that's you, I believe I can say with 100% certainty that it's not at all the Spirit's desire, certainly not mine, to have any one of you walk out of here today feeling any further burdened than you already are, with some kind of misplaced sense of like expectation or shame hanging on you, that God is standing here like now, just arms folded, disappointed, saying, I've, I've done everything for you. Why aren't you attempting more things for me? No, that's, that's not at all the heart of God for you any more than it was his heart for me during COVID lockdowns. So hear me carefully. This isn't in any way meant to be an escape hatch from the convicting work the Spirit may be doing in someone's heart right now. Don't hear this as like, oh, sweet, I don't have to do anything. But I also want to just say the reality that I've come to learn over the years is that not every message I preach is for everyone in the room. I know it isn't. And I'd be serving you poorly as your pastor if I didn't let anyone here today feeling just beat down, worn out, like right at the end of your rope, that you are no less a loved, ransomed citizen in the kingdom of God than anyone else here today, regardless of what you feel like you're able to attempt for God right now. Because isn't that just what we learned last week with that parable of the laborers in the vineyard, right? Time served. Amount given means nothing in the kingdom of our generous king who rewards the last just as he does the first. So I want to do what has become our pattern now to just take some time of silent prayer and reflection and listening 
for what the Spirit would want to speak to you specifically, how I'd want to apply this to you. For some of you, I'm praying the Spirit will like be inspiring that greatness and those great things to attempt for Him. For some of you, there, there may be a, a work of encouragement or even conviction. Uh, as you know, it's not that I can't attempt great things, I'm just not. And He's going to encourage you and push you to step out off the ledge and attempt those great things for you. Some of you, I'm praying you'll just receive the Spirit's comfort and embrace to know that what you have right now is enough. And he's not disappointed with you. So let's take that time and just sit quietly before him.